The fight against teaching critical race theory is actually a lot like the Scopes trial. How did they both threaten democracy? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Why would anybody want to disrupt a simple, totally reassuring belief in the order of the world? For example, Adam and Eve. Six days to create the universe. American history is nothing but a proud example for the world. But what happens when facts, knowledge, and truth get in the way of comforting beliefs? We know the Trump era was based on enforcement of beliefs over reality. But it didn't start in 2016. It goes back at least to the Scopes trial in Tennessee in 1925. Back in that era, many Americans were determined to believe the simple myth about how the Earth got here and angrily rejected the notion that humanity evolved. Six days was all God needed to create what we see today. The Bible said it, so they believed it. End of discussion. Uncomfortable, disquieting science that challenged the literal worlds of the Judeo-Christian Bible was the enemy to be destroyed. Such was the case of the famous Scopes trial and is once again revealing itself in the whipped-up fight against teaching America's kids the uncomfortable realities of systemic racism, which has, in fact, been with us all along. We're talking about critical race theory. The anti-evolution side in the Scopes trial may have lost in the court of law, but they never gave up. That strain of unquestioned adherence to the myth that God gave America to straight white Protestant men to have dominion over forever is very much alive today, revealing itself in the furious opposition to what's called critical race theory. In this movement, which traces back to the anti-evolution moment, demonstrable facts don't have any more weight than reductive belief. Ignorance is valued equally to being educated. Who'd have thought we'd ever get here? As it has been in the past, this mindset is a serious threat to our democracy. Authoritarian powers have to have a public happy to accept reduction and simplification of otherwise troubling reality. They need it. As with so many other examples, behind all the smoke screens about uh, critical race theory. The, the, this is about white Protestant power, and it's all part of their intent to replace our republic, our democracy, instead imposing a religious nationalism. The fight against critical race theory is but one line of attack. As someone said, we should try to think with history as we look at today and move ahead. Our guest today is Chuck Holden, professor of history at St. Mary's College of Maryland. Holden has written an alarming and perceptive article in History News Network titled, Experts Beware, Is America Headed for a Scopes Moment Over Critical Race Theory? Chuck Holden is the author and co-author of three books, including The New Southern University, Academic Freedom and Liberalism at UNC, and more recently, Republican Populist, Spiro Agnew, and the Origins of Donald Trump's America. That sounds like a fun book. I remember Spiro Agnew. A lot of people don't. Uh, uh, Chuck Holden, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure, Bert. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be here. Well, there's so much to talk about, and the place to start is defining terms. Pretty much everyone listening has heard of critical race theory. 
But what it means is really unclear. What is it and how did it arise from reaction to both the 1619 Project and the murder of George Floyd? Sure, good question, central question. So critical race theory first grew from the works of legal scholars in the 1980s, people like Derek Bell and Patricia Williams. And the question right away then is, well, why then? And when you look at the 1980s, the, the, the legal scholars who founded critical race theory are growing out of a post-Civil Rights Act, post-Voting Rights Act generation, really, 1964-1965, when supposedly a new, quote, colorblind era had begun. You know, the old Jim Crow structures that codified white supremacy and segregation were being dismantled. And when, presumably, anyway, you couldn't turn the fire hoses on civil rights marchers anymore. Mm. And yet, yeah, and yet by the 70s and the 80s, it was still very clear that there were significant structural impediments in the way of black advancement. So this emerging generation of what became critical race theory scholars asked, well, what were those structural obstacles that still existed? How did they get there? What can be done? So critical race theory then examines how assumptions about white supremacy got or get embedded, woven into our laws, our policies, our institutions, and then it studies or it, it interrogates how those assumptions get passed along. They get replicated in law and policy, often in a way, in a manner, um, you know, unaware yeah. of the original assumptions. But the result, of course, is to still significantly impact access to resources and equity and justice. Um, and so that's the, the this real insight that they offered is, is how these racial assumptions can be embedded into law or policy. And this insight then is something that can be used by sociologists and anthropologists and political scientists. And I'll, I'll make a plug for historians, Bert, and, and point out that We've been doing this for a while. <laughs> we we didn't think to call it critical race theory, but yeah. but it is you know it is basically you know very much part of the historical yeah. method, and so that's that's a, maybe a little abstract, and and I can walk you through a, a kind of example of of just what you know how how it actually looks, right? Um, sure. If you wanted to study the rise of segregated Jim Crow schools in the South in the early 1900s. You do your research and you can see how notions of white supremacy were built into those public education systems in the South in the 1920s, 20s, and 30s. The result, of course, is vastly different resources allocated for white schools versus black schools. The white community's assumption was that those black schools were inferior. Okay. Now, say that a young African-American man graduates from a local Tennessee high school in 1938. And he goes on to be the top of his class at Fisk University. But then he moves to say New York or Boston or Philly and he tries to get into law school. He's denied admission, not because of a state law. He's denied admission because the assumption is that being from a segregated Southern school system in the thirties, he's not as well educated. Yeah. So the people on that law school admissions board, you know, they may have been very well intentioned and they may have been quite enlightened regarding the racial issues of the day. And and as individuals, their hearts may have been in the right place. 
but their institutional commitments led them to deny admission to this African-American applicant. And that story gets repeated place after place, year after year, decade after decade. So what, yeah, so what critical race theory does, and is it, it investigates situations like that, and it's a very different critique, it's a different analysis of racism from our more popular understanding of racism as basically just like a personal moral failing, and you should just stop doing it, yeah, right? right. Yeah. Uh, if it were that easy, my goodness. Yeah, that's right. But that, that's a very interesting illustration there of how it gets built in that we're not aware mm-hmm. of it. We don't even see that, but it's that's clearly right. an example. And the title of your of your article in History News Network, which I highly recommend, uh, is Experts Beware as America Headed for a Scopes Moment Over Critical Race Theory. Well, no doubt listeners have heard of the Scopes trial, but... For many of us, public school was a very long time ago. <laughs> you call it a touchstone of that era of conservatism. What was that trial about? What were the stakes sure. for both sides? And how did this Tennessee, uh, well, how, how, does, how does this, what's going on now, remind you of the Scopes case? Right. It, it really has a lot of echoes uh, for me. Um, so the Scopes trial uh, was 1925. And Tennessee had just passed a, a law making it a crime to teach evolution in the public schools. Now, we should broaden our lens a little bit and note that Tennessee was not alone right. in doing this. Right. During the same time, yeah, there were a number of states that were uh, passing uh, similar type of laws, Oklahoma, uh, Mississippi, Arkansas, Florida. Other states tried, North Carolina tried. Okay, so now John Thomas Scopes himself was a part-time biology teacher in a little town called Dayton, Tennessee. And in discussion with some of the the town fathers over the passage of this new law, these guys were trying to drum up a little business, a little uh, notoriety for Dayton, Tennessee. And they asked him, hey, do you teach evolution? in your biology classes. And he said, well, yeah, I guess I do. You know, I guess I'm breaking the law. And so they decided to charge him and he agreed to it. Um, so he's charged under the new law, but then the trial turned into this giant nationwide and even international incident. Um, John Thomas Scopes's guilt was pretty clear. I mean, he acknowledged, yeah, I have been teaching biology, but the trial itself then focused on the issue of evolution versus Christian fundamentalism and the literal truth of the Bible. And part of the reason why it became such a huge, huge uh, uh, event was that it featured two very well-known and powerful figures of the day, William Jennings Bryan, defending Christian fundamentalism and the Bible's um, inerrancy, and defense lawyer Clarence Darrow. And the big, big moment of the trial was when William Jennings Bryan agrees to take the stand himself. And, and, and Clarence Darrow uh, just pour into his views on evolution and on the literal truth of the Bible. And then, as, as you say, you know, um, the, 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 the struggle did not end there, right? Scopes is found guilty for sure. Um, and there's a, there is a kind of popular legacy of the trial, um, and this is something I mentioned in, in the article that you referred to, was 
you know, the popular legacy of the trial is that William Jennings Bryan with his Christian faith was made to look kind of ignorant and incurious and foolish. Um, but in fact, um, you know, they, the, the Christian fundamentals did not view Bryan's performance on the stand as a defeat at all. Uh, he, in fact, it elevated him even more into kind of folk hero status for standing up uh, for, you know, Christian fundamentalism. Um, and he very cleverly um, went back and forth with Daryl in a way that, that I think oftentimes gets misunderstood. Um, you know, again, the popular legacy is that Brian was made to look kind of foolish. But if you look carefully at his answers, he's pretty clever in pushing back against the assertions of expertise that Daryl was making. Uh, and, and in that, I see a real connection to, to what we're seeing today is it's not just simply a, you know, well, you're talking about facts that I don't know about. It's challenging the notion of expertise itself. And that, for me, really had an echo of what we're seeing today. That, I think, is a very interesting and, frankly, very frightening uh, mm -hmm. reality that, uh, you know, when I was going to school, education was highly valued. Mm -hmm. And now it does seem that uh, ignorance is as valuable as, as being educated. And I just, I, I wonder about that. And Thomas Jefferson is quoted as saying, an educated citizenry is a vital requisite for our survival mm -hmm. as a free people. And I noticed that uh, for the past 50 years or so, the uh, more right-wing side of the Republican Party has been consistently reducing funding for public education. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder how serious this is as a threat to democracy, rejection of science and learning and valuing ignorance as much as, as education. And before you answer that, Donald Trump, he had lots of quotes. He said, I love the poorly educated. And that, that fits with, with what we're saying here. Why would that please his hyper-wealthy backers who really don't like democracy? How does that benefit an oligarchical economic, cultural, and political structure? Yeah, um, well, I think as far as, as Trump's you know, wealthy backers, I, I think they... Um, you know, they, they, what they really wanted were tax cuts and rolling back on, on regulations. And, and they, they got it, you know, they, they got that. Um, but, you know, the, the Trump quote that you referred to, I love the poorly educated, what's, what's he getting at there? And, and as people used to often say about Trump, he said the quiet part out loud, right? That the Republican party has been, <laughs> has been, peeling away the 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 non-college educated white voter for years even going back to Nixon and Agnew and their appeal to the hard hat vote and you know so what is it you know what what is he saying here that you know that as you and I listened to your this, your conversation with Professor Moss there recently and and he gives I think you guys were really on to something you know that's the politics of resentment and it's been very effective. And he gives them concrete people to, to point to, to say, you know, here is your problem, right? It's, it's, it's the immigrants, um, um, it's the woke crowd, or to, mm. to the point I was trying to make, it's, it's the experts getting in your business and telling you what, what you ought to be doing. 
Yeah, and they, they play that very well. And uh, it certainly seemed to have been uh, working in 2016 when the Democratic nominee came across as elitist and, and that she was entitled to it. And I note that relating to the Scopes case, William Jennings Bryan, um, he was the voice of Midwest populism mm-hmm. against the coastal elites. And he was nominee for president in 1896, 1900, 1908. And then he became secretary of state. And uh, so there's this sense of that intellectuals, uh, Adlai Stevenson was called a pointy-headed intellectual. You got to relate to people. And I've been amazed at my Democratic Party colleagues who, who after an election is lost, they say, well, we just have to go out and educate the people. I, I don't think that's the case. What, what about this sense of elitism, you know, the people in the flyover states? How, how powerful is that? And, and how might that relate to the uh, thread that goes back to the Scopes case? Yeah, um, well, I think it. I think it's it's very powerful, right? Um, and I think that you know that that what you're talking about, with, especially with Brian, you know, um, is that that he really, especially well, he always had in the 1890s and on through the 1920s, he claimed to be standing up for you know the common man right. and the little guy, um, and um, now in in the Scopes case, he said. Um, you know, as Darrow was sort of peppering him with these questions about, well, do you know how many people are in China 5,000 years ago? You know, of course he didn't, right? Or he said he didn't, right? And he he said, um, you know, he said, I'm, and I'm quoting Brian here, he said, I have all the information I need to live and die by. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and I think that fits into what you're referring to with, you know, the, 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 the comment from, you know, um, Secretary Clinton about the deplorables and, and um, you know, the reference to the flyover state, you know, that these are people that can be, you know, safely ignored. You can just fly over them. Right. Um, and, and you know, obviously, you know, we, we cannot do that, right? I mean, yeah. if, if, <laughs> if, if nothing else, the electoral map won't let it happen, right? Um, so, um but I think there's there's a there's a you know a larger point that that you're you're making there and 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 that is that you know it it really becomes a question of how do we characterize what it is that people know right mm. and and if if you know Brian says I have all the information I need to live and die by um, and if he had said that you know it, you know, what does that mean? What is it he needs to know, right? That in terms of right versus wrong, in terms of how humans ought to treat one another, if he just said, I have, from his faith, all the information I need to live and buy, die by, well, you wouldn't have a problem with that, right? Right. right. Um, you don't need an expert in theology to teach you how to be a kind neighbor, for example. Um, and so, you know, so I think there's a way of, of, what has happened is that I think you know expertise as a form of knowledge has has come to be seen as um, this this 
you know, this, this preserve of the elite. Um, and, you know, I, I, there's no doubt about it that Fox News and Rush Limbaugh's have, have hit this drumbeat, you know, for 30, going on 30 years now. But to your point about the 2016 campaign, I, you know, I think, you know, uh, educators and, and liberals and progressives have, have, have too often kind of allowed that uh, to, to, you know, to ring true to too many people. Mm. You well, know, one of the things, sorry, one of, one of the things that I, I've been thinking about um, past few days is you think about the civil rights movement and especially, you know, the role that Martin Luther King plays. And, you know, Martin Luther King's point, you know, he was very proud of his education as well. He should have been. But he also knew that it was not his expertise in theology that was going to persuade people to get on board, right? It, it was not his tex- technical ability to explain doctrine that was going to do it. Right. He was just making a, he was making a moral case. You know, he's making a moral case. He's making a case about justice. And you didn't need an expert to, to kind of lead you to a conclusion that, you know, hey, maybe we ought to, you know, maybe we ought to stop turning the fire hoses on people. Mm. But then again, you know, ha- having that ability to cite history and learn from history, and parenthetically, one of the main things I have learned from history is that we never learn from history, <laughs> and, and that uh, y- you can build that into your presentation, I think, so that perhaps people can understand. But certainly coming across as an expert, you know, it rubs a lot of people the wrong way. No yeah. one likes to feel less than. And I, I wonder if uh, clinging to simplistic beliefs is a tool that the poorly educated can pick up and fight back against, you know, feeling less than. Oh, I, I think it is. Um, I think it is, is, you know, when that, when that tool is provided, right? Um, and when that tool of of you know being put upon and, and being made to feel less than is 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 put out there either by you know by the Fox News by the Tucker Carlson's of the world yeah. or or by you know some college professor you know saying something way too condescending right <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely and then God knows that happens too I mean there are somewhere around eight hundred thousand full time college professors some of us are going to say stupid things right. <laughs> Could happen. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so again, I, I, I think, you know, the, you know, the, the pushback against, against, you know, um, against this notion of, of, of expertise and is, it, it's very understandable. Um, it's, it's a, it's a challenge though, because many parts of our modern world, are in fact complicated, really yes, complicated. Very much so. Right? And and we do need experts to help us work through them. I mean, my goodness, we're in the middle of a global you know, pandemic when you know expertise is probably going to save a billion lives by the time the vaccine has been distributed. Right. Um, but it's 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 a problem when knowledge becomes seen and Going back to what I just said, it's a problem when knowledge becomes seen as something that only the experts have, mm. uh, because then it can really become politicized, and, and unfortunately, it has. 
Wow, that's an interesting point. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about threats to democracy, as there are so many of them. Our guest today is uh, Professor of History Chuck Holden, who teaches at the uh, St. Mary's College in Maryland. And he's written an article titled, Experts Beware. Yeah. Is America headed for a scopes moment over critical race theory? Yeah, you might not want to be seen as an expert, I suppose, although, <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of like Dr. Fauci, you know, I'm glad that these experts were able to deal with it, you know, and this brings up the subject of, of people being against masks, people being, you know, reluctant to, to get the vaccine. It it just amazes me, like, like there's some uh, something holy about being, you know, against masks and against uh, uh, vaccines. And it's something, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good uh, quality. It, it, it does kind of uh, amaze me, and I'm not sure how to address it, but certainly we can't be seen as condescending as you right. mentioned. I wonder how pervasive in America is as compared with other countries. The feeling... Here we have that feeling of pride being simple men of faith. That's what they, I think, I think Brian even called himself that. How has mm-hmm. that widespread feeling affected the very definition of the Republican Party? And I wonder how this compares with, with other countries. I mean, other countries have left, middle, right, uh, conservative, liberal. But what about this uh, feeling of pride being simple men of faith? Right, and 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 I also, and I think we can you know, bring those together also to, to kind of circle back to your question about you know what how grave of a threat is this to to our democracy, which I I need to I need to get back to as well. I really yeah, didn't get to that. Yeah. So how pervasive? Um, I my hunch, I my my knowledge of of you know what's going on in, in in the rest of the world obviously is is not as as deep as i'd like but the sense i get is that we are seeing similar uh nationalist anti-cosmopolitan movements in uh hungary and poland mm-hmm. um to a certain extent in places like australia um and and again there it is it, it i think that 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 the echo there, the similarity is that there, there's just a, a, a hearkening back to a quote unquote simpler time, a simpler life, a simpler community organization, simpler family uh, lifestyle and so forth. Um, and that those get woven into some idea of the nation itself, right? So the American version of this, of course, is make America great again, right? There's that kind of nationalism that's that's very much a part of 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 you know this kind of um, white republicanism of today um and and the the second part of the question you know, how the widespread how how white white how, how widespread that feeling is and how it's def- affected the definition of the republican yeah. party that's something new i yeah i mean i think it has pushed the republican party into a whole new um, space from certainly from its origins in the 1850s. It's really remarkable to me, Bert, that you know the republic. So much of today's Republican Party is is fundamentally at odds with the original Republican Party. Um, you look at somebody like Lincoln, 
Lincoln would have loved to have had more formal education. Mm. You know, the you know the, the Republican Party was was enthusiastic about encouraging more public education. You know, they they were the ones that that helped give a tremendous boost to higher education in the form of of the Morrill Act, the laws that that, that created the land grant universities, for example. Right. And the Republican Party, you know, it's uh, it's it was certainly not all abolitionist, but certainly, you know, opposed to the expansion of slavery. And eventually, by the middle of the Civil War, uh, the Republican Party stood for the end of slavery. Yes. Uh, and people like Eric Foner, historians like Eric Foner, have, you know, look at those transitional years from the war to Reconstruction and they still see you know, a pretty solid uh, support among Republican leaders, of course, Lincoln is gone at this time, uh, you know, to continue to expand laws to protect the civil rights of, of you know, the, the, of the former slaves. And, and you know, that, that effort eventually, you know, fails, but, but it was there. And so, you know, so, so much of this, of where the Republican Party today, I, I believe, would just be almost unrecognizable to, to someone like Lincoln. Yeah, he yeah. wanted more education. I, I, I'm sure he did. And, yeah. and interesting how the Republicans used to be in favor yeah. of, of higher education for more people. And boy, has, is that switch. And of course, the... I, I find it interesting that Republican friends of mine say, no, no, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party have not flipped positions. Well, they did. 1965, when Lyndon Johnson yeah. signed the, uh, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act, uh, that just switched it. As, I like this quote. Uh, not every Republican is a racist, but every every racist is a Republican these days. <laughs> it, it seems to be the case. And, you know, talk about valuing ignorance. In 1920, the amazingly prescient H.L. Mencken looked out at America and said, as democracy is perfected, the office yeah. of president represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron, end of quote. And even his secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, said his boss was a moron. He had an additional word to that as well, but we can't say that on the radio. <laughs> Trump is clearly a racist. What could be said? What What about the appeal of being uh, a, a kind of a you know uneducated? I think yeah. that he was tremendously popular because he was not educated. Because he, I don't you know, does he he ever read books? I don't think so. Right. He doesn't right. need to. What about that? Right, right. I mean, it's such a such a great Mencken quote. I mean, only Mencken, right? <laughs> I know he's amazing. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So, look, Trump's appeal, right? I mean, he made it and continues to make it very clear that he does not really know much about the world, and he doesn't, doesn't care. Care? No. <laughs> and yeah, and and his message to his base is is that you know is that therefore, right, one does not need to know much about the world or show much interest in it. And, and now this ought to, ought to make him wildly unfit to be president. <laughs> but it didn't, evidently. I mean, maybe it did, but he still ended up president, right? Um, 
but it is it, it's that I, I think it's that permission you know a lot of times when, when people talk about trump and some of the the kind of wild things that his supporters do they 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 use this you know he's given them permission and 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 i think there's something to that mm. right he's he's given them permission to be incurious you know he's being and, and and even more than that he's given them permission to to mock and attack and reject anyone who who differs with their their grasp of of reality and that you know and that's where i think mm. You know, we really start to see the the threat to democracy itself that that this is a a, a part of. Um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Dr. Fauci, and I think this is just a, a perfect example of of where this stuff can lead. Um, this kind of anti-intellectualism and anti-expertise. It's not. I mean, it is. I think to a certain extent, almost like an emotional. Like, well, this feels good. I can tell the experts to go stick it, and that makes me feel good. But, but I, I think the danger goes beyond that to to danger to a, to a danger to the democracy itself. You mentioned Dr. Fauci, and this is just a perfect case in point. Fauci, you know, Trump and his followers from the beginning questioned his expertise. Right. What does he really know? And they noted that he changed his advice a couple of times along the way. Well, sure. Right. We know why, because the information changed. Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And but but to Trump, you know, he said, you know, like, well, you know, what does he really know? Echoes of William Jennings Bryan there, really. Uh, right. Um, and but they but they don't just question Fauci's expertise, Dr. Fauci's expertise. They they can't resist attacking him personally. Yes, yes. Right. He's a grandstander. Trump projecting as always criticized Fauci as a promoter. <laughs> and so, what's the real life result of that? Well, we're living through it. Right? Widespread skepticism about COVID's dangers, about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine, and the facts have still not broken through to convince them otherwise, right? 600,000 dead Americans and counting, mm. vaccine effectiveness rates in the 90s, right? Um, and this is, so, this is both a, a human tragedy in real time, and it's utterly bewildering to people who value science and evidence. But the point I think resonates back to the Scopes trial, that this is not just a matter of you know, millions of individuals choosing to be dangerously ignorant. It is a kind of anti-small-D democratic politics that we're seeing today. So let, let me try and connect the dots Yes, here. please do. Okay. So and I'm going to kind of roll through a list of things here and think of all the policy implications. Um, right? If Fauci and his experts at the CDC and NIH are right about COVID and the vaccines, then maybe the experts on climate change are right. And maybe the sociologists and the political scientists who study the rise of you know, right-wing recruitment and police forces are right. And maybe the historians teaching about the long history of oppression through institutions and laws and policies built on the assumptions of white supremacy, maybe they're right, and on and on and on. And maybe the election officials, experts in their own way, who counted the votes in Arizona and Georgia and Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, maybe they were right too, right? And so this is how anti-intellectualism then, if you, if you just question all of that, it ends up being an attack on democracy itself. Interesting. The logic there is impeccable. If these guys are right, then this is right, then this is right, and they can't have that. Right. They can't right. have that. So it right. do, it does connect with uh, January 6th, amazingly enough. Yes. Who, who, 
what would you say about how is it, it you know the scopes thing and the anti-intellectual thing how does that connect with uh, january 6th i i think it's it's uh, it's certainly of a piece right uh we see it in their conviction that that well either this was a patriotic event right, right. um or or that it that you know you know patriotic event so the, the connection be that that to the scopes trial that that no william jennings bryan is actually the hero of that story right um and to the to the january 6th event among trump's base we see it that that the the depiction of this as as you know patriots doing the patriotic thing or or they they just deny that it was an insurrection right right It, it, it it didn't really happen the way the more the media portrayed it Right. So they, they, you know, it again, both of those interpretations are going to question the portrayal from the quote unquote media. Uh, Right. That's right. So we're back to the experts. And the reality is (laughs) Trump lost. (laughs) Biden won. (laughs) Democracy worked. And yet they cannot, they. They, these, this uh, sector of the uh, populace mm-hmm. cannot possibly accept that because, as you said, if that's true, then this is true. Climate change, all these other things, maybe homosexuality isn't that dangerous, right. you know, maybe stuff like that. And I'll tell you, I, I grew up in the 50s, and I remember the attack on rock and roll, seemingly, oh, yeah. seemingly coming from the old Confederacy, that it, too, was a threat to their way of life. Black and white kids dancing together to what they call jungle music, which would lead, of course, to communism, Bolshevism. <laughs> but rock and roll is here to stay. We have not <laughs> gone communist. <laughs> Sometimes it reminds me of the old fable of the king ordering the tide not to come in as the country <laughs> continues to evolve from domination by white males and becomes more inclusive of black and brown and other people and that white males are no longer in domination and control. What does that do to their determination as, as this reality is surrounding them. I can imagine it, it infuriates them. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, the, 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 the handy phrase in, in some political circles is, you know, demographics is destiny. And, you know, it, it, it may be eventually, but, um, but it's, it's, it's not yet. Right. Um, as the country does become, you know, more diverse, um, what does that do to their determination? I, 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 I don't know. I, I have a, I think this could go one of a couple well, it could go any number of ways, but the, a couple of ways that, that I think about often now is that the more hopeful side of me uh, wants to believe that we'll look back at this period of time from say the, you know, the opposition, the sort of paranoid opposition to Barack Obama's election mm-hmm. To, to the defeat of Trump as as kind of a sustained temper tantrum, right? That that the country is changing in ways we don't like and we're just going to, you know, have a fit about it. Um, yeah. yeah the um, shoe fits, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, of, but of course, if they ever hear that, oh my goodness, will they freak out. They'll call you an, an elitist, you know, talking oh, yeah. down to them. But it sure does look like 
I mean, Trump is, you know, a very badly behaved little boy, it seems. So temper tantrum is something that, that's, that's not out of their realm. You were about to say more. Yeah, <laughs> and I realize that is a very, temper tantrum is a very condescending term on my part. Oh. Um, guilty as charged. Um, but, um, but, you know, to your point, to the point that you and Professor Moss were, were making in, in your earlier podcast is that, you know, some of that, that, that alienation, that that anxiety about why the country is headed, is is based in real things, right? You know, your your Rust Belt voter, you know, those jobs yes. are gone. Yes, and and they're not coming back. Right. And you know, and you know, that is a problem, right? Um, so, um, but um, and I said, you know, the, the my deeper concern is that is that you know this is what we're witnessing. And I, I hope I'm wrong on this. Is is a you know it's really a, a very serious turn away from democracy and toward uh, more of an embrace of authoritarianism on the right. You know, I mean, look, we've we've had a president that pretty clearly sent his followers to attack Congress, while at the same time in the states, his followers are busy dismantling local democracy. I mean, I you know if yes. that's not a grab toward authoritarianism. I, I don't know what what is really, um, and if it succeeds, then you know the demographic shift may not be a problem, right? If 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 the control over the levers of government are so firmly in the hands of uh, the Tom Cottons of the world, <laughs> you know, then there you are, and that's that's a that's a pretty disturbing prospect in my view. Yeah, it's fascinating I'll, that's one word for it looking at the potential 2024 presidential candidates yeah. I mean, it's just they, they embrace their non-expertise and they're you know we're just a simple uh, faith oriented man and uh, you know so so many different things the polit- political uh, right seems to be obsessed with sexuality actually uh they made up this bizarre story that democrats notably hillary clinton were child sex predators they're furious at i think non-procreative sex the idea of unisex bathrooms just drives them up a wall they seem terrified about not only homosexuals but non-binary people which are becoming more and more out there what about all that how does that fit in with the long tradition of the insistence on simple beliefs remaining locked in control as exemplified in the scopes trial uh you're right i i think it it, it fits pretty clearly i mean when you think about um, you know, the United States throughout its history has invested a lot in very um, limited notions of gender and, you know, what are, what are men, right, and what are women, right, um, and, 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 and family as well. Um, now, it's not that the definitions never change they can shift a bit you know the notion of family in the 1950s was pretty different from the notion of family say in the 1870s or the 18 teens you know where you might have multiple generations or in the 1950s it would have been just the so-called nuclear family right so it it, so it's not that 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 
it's not that the the understanding of what a family is or a male is or female never shifts. It's it's just that whatever definition is current has a lot of <laughs> a lot of emphasis. You know, it's it's really seen as as solid. This is it. This is how God right. has planned it, or this is how nature has designed it, and that's the end of the discussion. Yep. And yeah, and so much then flows out of these notions of gender and notions of family. And, and, you know, let alone, you know, the, the religious traditions that seem to, to, you know, support these ideas as well. And of course, you know, if you're a person of faith, you know, the, this is, you know, the, these, these are, these are God's designs. These are God's plans. It's not, not what, what I say or not what some sociologist says, you know, this is what God says. Right. So, you know, so when we live in a period of time, when, you know, the, the lived reality of so many people now that they're more and more able to come out of the closet, as they right. say, is that, well, that actually those categories really, you know, they don't hold for everyone. <laughs> and in fact, they may not hold for quite a few people, you know. And so what what do we do, right? Um, you know, on the progressive side, this is really very much a, a civil rights issue. It's like, well, they're, you know, they're foreign human just like I am, and they deserve to have full civil rights and access to health care and, and so, so on and so forth. Um, but to to the conservative side, you know, this is a real, um, you know, disruption of, of long-held notions of masculinity and femininity and family and you know, people may, you know, legislation may seem like a far off thing to, to a lot of people, right? That's something that, that Washington, D.C. does, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But, but family isn't, right? We're all in the middle of family. And, and, um, and when you have a cultural moment when, when these ideas of, of family and men and women and masculinity and femininity are really up in the air, you know, that, that really can be disorienting. Yes. And, 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 and so much, you know, it can also, uh, of what we see today, it can also then quickly be politicized. And, and, and so that's, you know, and, and again, kind of pulling that back into to, to this dynamic that we see in the 20s with the Scopes trials that, yeah, this, there's a scary new world out there. Yes. And these experts, these experts are pushing it and and they want you to just kind of get along and get on board. And, and, and that's the, you know, stop complaining about it. Um, and. You know, and so there's there's a real vulnerability there that, that I think, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world are very skilled at, at, at playing on. Well, certainly. And as you mentioned, a lot of manufacturing jobs are just they're gone. Yeah, they're not coming yeah. back. It's hard. It is really hard. And farming is difficult now that used yeah. to be, you know, that was what uh, William Jennings Bryan represented. He spoke for, yeah. for, you know, that was his populism for farmers and uh, laborers. And it's just, it's not changing. So people are afraid. They need uh, reassurance. And I, I do find it interesting that, uh, as you write, that uh, to evolution is, is just a, uh, it serves as an entry point. It did in, in the Scopes trial. It serves as an entry point to attack educators and expertise in general as existential threats to their way of life. 
And certainly, you know, I, I do find it uh, disturbing. Many, many states in America, my own state included New Hampshire's budget. They worked it into the budget, which either has to be passed or, or rejected. Uh, it bans discussion of racism and sexism in public schools. Education itself is under fire. The, the hard right has taken to calling colleges and universities as having become centers of indoctrination. And as you say, after the Scopes trial, quote, conservatives continue to connect expertise with unwelcome social change, end of quote. You also say they link expertise with radicalism. Yeah. Say more about that, please. Oh, sure. Yeah, there, there is, there's a long tradition there. And I'll just, um, um, uh, you know, that the, the, the expertise, the, the, the ideas that often flow from expertise are, are often ones that, again, as we've been saying, kind of challenge the status quo of society, whatever that may happen to be at any certain time. And, and you know, calls for change in some quarters can be very welcome. And if they're not welcome, they can be seen as radical and too far reaching. I'll give you just a couple of quick examples here um, of, of how this linking of expertise with radicalism works uh, throughout throughout the 20th century, right? Just a couple of quick examples. One of them that I uh, made reference to in, in the piece was from some research I did on the, the book I wrote on academic freedom at UNC. And the story here is that in the beginning of the 1920s, UNC had a top-notch, cutting-edge sociology department, first rate. And they began to study the community life of these new textile villages in North Carolina. And you know, began to just investigate, you know, what, what were the, you know, living conditions like and were there health problems in these textile villages? And if so, surely the state would want to know uh, so that they may, maybe they could improve sanitation and so forth. Okay. Um, so this is expertise being put to, they thought, good social value, good use here, you know, that, that this is something the state would want them to do. To the textile mill owners, this was not welcome at all. Uh, they saw this as an intrusion into their world. And so what did they do? They attacked the experts and they attacked their expertise, right? And it was a full-on public relations campaign against UNC, against the sociology department, calling them, you know, radicals, that these were meddlers, these were these were intellectuals. They didn't know anything about the real world. Yeah. Uh, and, and what they were really doing is promoting a, a kind of radicalism by suggesting that maybe, you know, maybe the state do something to help improve life in these textile mill villages. Um, and, you know, that's just a classic example. Um, we saw it a lot in the McCarthy era in the Cold War, right, when um, – College professors, you know, like you mentioned, that Adley Stevenson supporters, just by virtue of Adley Stevenson being a you know an intellectual kind of guy, um, he's made to seem as just way out of touch. Um, but college professors then uh, were also seen as potential communists, uh, just for you know raising questions about. For example, American foreign policy, yeah. right? We see this in the 50s. We see, certainly see this in the 60s in the Vietnam era, right? When, you know, some college professors are, you know, kind of out in front of, of raising questions about American foreign policy yeah. in Vietnam. And, you know, well, given the logic of the Cold War, who but a communist would dare, 
you know, would dare raise questions about American foreign policy, even if their expertise and is in that the case. line of work. Yeah, that is yeah, still the yeah. case. I, I, people still on the right say that. Well, if you were against the war in Vietnam, you were a communist. You, you wanted to right. beat America, and you were for Russians and and Chinese. And another, they use the term. They seem really freaked out at the idea of the phrase they have is cultural relativism. What is, how does that term apply? How does that serve as another convenient focus? I mean, certainly, uh, as you said, uh, evolution was an entry point. Uh, you know, right. unisex bathrooms are an entry point. There's all these different entry points. What, what right. about uh, cultural relativism freaks them out so much? And what do they mean by that? Right. So on a, on a college campus, you know, if you take an anthropology class, for example, um, you know, you're going to learn about uh, different cultures, and and part of the, the the message there is to, you know, to to sort of be able to analyze and assess the the uh, the dynamics and the characteristics of these different cultures, and you know, but so the question then is, well, what what sort of conclusions should we draw from that? And when you refer to cultural relativism, what that is saying is that we should you know be careful, guard against just, you know, real blanket judgments of, of, mm. of, of a culture, like, well, this is just no good. And we need, you know, something, something needs to be done about it. It's like, try to value different cultures on their own merits as, you know, as best as one can. And, and that there, that there is value in understanding the ins and outs of different cultures, not only, you know, throughout the globe, but throughout time, right. That, uh, that this is inherently worth knowing. Now, where that can become an entry point uh, for for what we're talking about today is when that that dynamic, that approach, is sort of caricatured as as you know college professors saying you know there's no right or wrong, right? It's just all culturally relative. There's no right or wrong, right. Uh, which is of course not not what they're saying, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So it is. There is change out there, and it does. Let's face it, you know, it does kind of threaten the uh, the hegemony of the, you know, white supremacists, and they, you know, pick up any tool they can use. And as I said earlier, you know, after we've lost election, Democrats have said, "Well, we need to go out there and educate." No, that misses the point. What what approach? Uh, I was glad you said you were somewhat optimistic. I am too. Huh, what can we do? Do you think we can't talk down to these people? We can't say, educate right. them. They don't care about that. What, what, what's your suggestion? That one of the things that that, that I, I keep coming back to, uh, Bert, is that this this stereotypical Rust Belt voter, right? Who's who's going to vote for Trump or who did vote for Trump? And yet, I still believe that a Joe Biden administration will do more to try and help that Rust Belt voter than a Donald Trump administration did in, in a material sense. There's a lot of discussion about the direction in which the Democratic Party should go. Some say more to some center. The others look to uh, AOC as some kind of example. W what does she offer that might be a way to better connect Democrats with, with working people? When I follow her comments and read you know, her statements, the thing that I am struck by is even though I mean she is new and she is super dynamic and she is very, very skillful at, at social media, and yet there's also a pretty clear effort to really pigeonhole her as being strictly about identity politics. 
But what I come away with is time and again, her messages about where the country ought to go and what policies the Biden administration ought to pursue, they are very much about working class people, period. They're not just about identity politics. I think that is really encouraging. Here you have this dynamic young woman you know, from New York City. She really, really uh, has a very working class perspective on, on kind of the situation that the country's in and where we should go from here. I tend to agree most heartily. Thank you. <laughs> what that means, what can we do is got to get out the vote, right? And we've got to keep getting out the vote and we've got to have people run for, um, you know, for your school board and for your county commissioner and for your, you know, your state legislature. Um, and, you know, you got to get out the vote and you got you to gotta produce, you got you to get things done. And I think somehow trying to connect with people and not dismissing yeah. people who's had, yeah. whose lives are, are more difficult now, thanks to so many different factors, and listening to people. You know, you, talking yeah. down to people doesn't work. Trump seemed to somehow tap into it, and, and they seem to be listening. we got to do that, too, I must say. Yeah, yeah. Well, been, Absolutely. Uh, and this has been a fascinating discussion and uh, yeah, somewhat hopeful. I, you know, we, we have to somehow de-threatenize, that's not a real word, but make, make expertise not so scary anymore. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it saved yeah. lives. Gosh, you know. Well, if people want to follow your work, I guess uh, History News Network, I don't know, that, what the books that you've written, what are they? Oh, um, I've, uh, the most recent one is the book on Sparrow Agnew. It's called Republican Populist, uh, Sparrow Agnew and the, and the Origins of Donald Trump's America. The one that, that I drew from for the piece that we we're talking today came out about 10 years ago already. That hardly oh. seems possible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's called The New Southern University uh, Academic Freedom and Liberalism at UNC. And then my original book way back when um, was called In the Great, or still is, called In the Great Maelstrom, um, <laughs> Conservatives in Post-Civil War South Carolina. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. I do love history. It's fun stuff. And we can, we can learn from it. We really can. Thank you so yes. much, Chuck Holden, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. My pleasure, Bert. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We don't need no thought control No dark sarcasm in the classroom Teacher leave their kids alone